Let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 136 with me this morning. This is our last psalm in a series. And then um, we'll have some uh, messages that will focus more on Christmas for the next couple of weeks here. And then um, after, um, well, sometime in January, we will start 2 Samuel. So if you want to begin to read ahead in 2 Samuel, that would probably be beneficial. We had covered um, 1 Samuel not too long ago, and so we'll be picking that up. It actually begins with the story of David. David was obviously... um, in 1 Samuel as well, but we now see um, David rise to power, if you could, if we can say it that way. So we will be doing that um, coming January. So again, if you want to read ahead, that would be awesome. Psalm 136. This is going to be interactive this morning. And it's because we have to be interactive this morning. So I'm going to expect certain things of you. And you are going to joyfully interact. How does that sound? No. Uh-huh, yeah, from my own kids, no. Yeah. This is actually a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. We don't know who the author is. The primary theme is the everlasting covenant loyalty of God. So basically we're looking at the goodness of God through His everlasting covenant of loyalty to His people. Let's talk about the structure here. It starts with this opening charge in the first three verses to give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. He's then going to reveal to us three primary reasons or things that He wants us to focus on. The first is the Lord's creative works. The second is His delivery of Israel from Egypt. And then the third is Him leading Israel to the promised land. So what you have is this call to praise God for His goodness, then three reasons, if you will, for that, or things that reveal that. And then lastly, we have this um, closing summary in the last few verses. So if you want to break it down again, 1, 2, and 3 are an introduction. At the very end, 23, 24, 25, and 26 are the close. And between that, we have three sections that sort of help us to understand why He's calling on God's people to praise God for His goodness. As for the poetic elements, I'm going to use another term you've probably not heard us use before, and the reason for that is, this is the only psalm in the entire Old and New Testament that is referred to as an antiphonal refrain. An antiphonal refrain. Anybody want to take a stab at exactly what an antiphony is? You've actually been a part of them before, I can almost assure you. Have you ever been in a service somewhere where either the worship leader or the pastor or somebody has asked for your involvement where he will say something or share something and ask for the congregation to repeat something back? There's something that's done on Easter Sunday oftentimes at Grace. You remember what that is? Where they say something from the pulpit and the people always respond. Anybody remember what that phrase is? Yeah, he is risen, and then he is risen indeed. That's an antiphony. This psalm is an antiphony. It involves an antiphonal refrain, which is basically a responsive alteration between two groups of people, usually those who are leading, such as a choir or singers, or even a worship leader or pastor, in the days of the Old Testament, a priest, and the congregation would then respond back with a phrase, and so it becomes this interaction 
The leaders say one thing, the congregation says something else. The leader says something, and so it goes back and forth. And so we see that in this particular psalm where there's one phrase that is repeated by the congregation, and it's this. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And it's repeated 26 times in this psalm. In fact, it's repeated after every single stanza. Now, I'll be real frank. It's a little bit weird because we don't do that kind of thing typically. You know, we sit and don't often interact or respond. And so it can be a little uncomfortable sometimes for people, especially when we say the same thing over and over and over. But I thought it would benefit us this morning since that was the author's intent. It would be inappropriate for us to read this and not ask for some kind of involvement by those of you sitting on that side of this podium this morning. So we're going to do that, but we're going to break it down a little bit. As I go through each section, I'm going to ask you to read it with me, but I will do my part and you will do your part and we'll break it down. So as we go through each section today, I'm going to ask you to actually join us in doing that. Again, this is the only psalm like this in the whole entire Bible, so it is extremely unique. There's a couple of other things in it as well that make it very unique. But it was likely intended that the priest would read the first stanza and then the congregation, Israel, would repeat the second. And then he would say the third and they would repeat the fourth. And again, it was created to um, involve the congregation in praising. One of the reasons why we here at Renew um, take time at the, the, set, or the last third of our service to have prayer is because oftentimes my, my sense has been that we come in and we sit in the chairs and as people pray and they, they sort of pray between this song or that song or they pray after this and they use it as a transition, that oftentimes our minds go other places and we don't engage one another in the activity of worship. We sing, but then we sit and we listen as somebody like me teaches. And then when we pray, we often sit and listen and we, we bow our heads and we think about a million other things. And so this a psalm like this was intended to encourage the congregation to involve themselves in the praise and not have it be just those up front that are doing it. And so, um, again, it's rather unique. It's the only one like it in the whole entire Bible. There were likely all kinds of other ones that Israel used that just simply weren't written down. Another feature that you find in this psalm is the repetition. He says, give thanks three times in the introduction. He also says it at the very end. We've talked about this before on how oftentimes authors will bookend things especially in the Psalms. And so if you look, he says, give thanks to the Lord in verse 1. He says, give thanks to the, to the God of gods in 2. He says, give thanks to the Lord of lords in verse 3. But then he waits until the very end, and the very last thing he says, verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. And it serves as bookends. So he starts with a phrase, and then he ends with a phrase, and that becomes the beginning and the ending, the, the bookending of the psalm. It's a creative tool that poets sometimes use. Another thing we see here in terms of repetition is the phrase, to him. If you look in here throughout here, you'll see this. But eight different times we see, to him, to him, to him. As we've talked about before, we like to have cadence and rhyming in our psalms. You know, roses are red, violets are blue. And then we go on with either a cadence or a rhyming of that. One of the things that oftentimes we find in Hebrew poetry to build a cadence is to have a phrase that's repeated. So he does that, to him, to him to him, and it builds this rhythm or this cadence to the psalm. So we see that here as well, and we'll see that as we go through it. Um, the other thing that's really unique about this, we've talked about before the parallelism that's used. You remember how something is said, and then the author either repeats the exact same thing, or sometimes he repeats the opposite, because there's different types of parallelism. 
He does something highly technical in this particular psalm that is easy to overlook, but again, I think it helps us to appreciate it. First off, the parallelism that he uses is three parts to it, not the typical two. Meaning, usually in Hebrew poetry, you find a statement that's made and it's followed up with one line after that, and then it goes on another statement and another line. So it's kind of a two-part parallelism. Here, he uses three-part. He'll say something and then repeats two other lines related to it, So it's unique in that respect, because it's not quite as common as regular two-part parallelism, but then he does something else. He not only takes and does a three-part, but he sticks something in between each part. So he separates the three parts, and I want to show you this. If you look at, say, verses 7 through 9, look at what he does. To him who made the great lights, that's the statement. But then he says, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then comes the Second line of that parallelism to this, or the sun to rule the day, that explains the great lights, does it not? That's the second part of the parallelism. Then he puts another little verse in there again. He says, "For his loving kindness is everlasting." And then he gets to the third part: the moon and stars to rule by night. And then he sticks again that refrain in there. So what he does with this is he takes not just the regular parallelism, but he expands it by making a three-part parallelism. But instead of just doing that, then he even separates those individual pieces. So it's really, it's kind of pretty, especially if you were looking at this from a Hebrew perspective. It's beautiful. And again, very unique. It's not that that's not found elsewhere, but that's found throughout this. So whoever wrote this psalm was very specific about what he did and was putting a lot of thought into how it was structured and the way that he built it. I'm not saying the others weren't, but boy, there's some neat stuff in how this is broken out and things that make it stand out. So it's not only unique in the fact that, it's that this, it uses this antiphony, but it's unique in how he structures the parallelism and the way that he works through that, the things that he does. And it's, again, you've got examples of this, verses 10 through 12, he does something very similar. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn. That's the first part. The next part is verse 11. And brought Israel out from their midst. He explains it. And then the third part is verse 12. For a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And then again, he breaks those up and he sticks this refrain in between there. So we'll see that throughout here. The very last thing I'll point out before we actually get into the teaching is that he does something else and that he uses a variety of names for the Lord. Look at what he does in verse 1. He refers to Yahweh, Lord. That's the Hebrew tetragrammaton. It's the Yahweh is another way to read that word Lord. So he refers to God that way. Verse 2, he refers to God as God of gods. Verse 3, he refers to him as Lord of lords. And then at the very end, he refers to him as the God of heavens. So he varies the name of God instead of just simply repeating the Lord's name. He uses all these various designations for the Lord. Again, it's just a poetic thing. You know, when we learn to write as kids in middle school and then on into high school, we're always often encouraged to not just use the same exact word. Find some other ways to say things, right? Helps make it a little bit more enjoyable to read. And that's exactly what he does here. Instead of repeating the name of the Lord over and over and over, He varies it with different phrases and different ways to refer to the Lord. And that's going to be important because it comes from another passage of Scripture where those phrases are used. But let's go ahead and um, look at the the teaching from this. I want to look at the opening charge here, the first three verses. That's where he opens up and introduces us to his psalm. We're going to read the first three verses interactively here. Your part is going to be, for his loving kindness is everlasting. All right? So let me go ahead and read just those first three verses and have you respond. I'll read the first half of each stanza and then you can repeat. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. 
Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. What do you think his point is? Absolutely, yeah. Notice he starts out by saying, give thanks. And he actually does it as a, in a, as a threefold repetition. He says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. The basic meaning of the Hebrew word to give thanks there simply means to acknowledge something. It means to recognize something. Something. It's actually used in three primary ways in the Old Testament. One is simply that, to confess something, to recognize it as being true. The second is to acknowledge some truth about man or specifically to praise. And the third way, which is the way he's using it here, is to make a public acknowledgement or a declaration of God's attributes or his works. That's the way the author is using it here. By saying give thanks, he's actually asking us to make a public acknowledgement or a declaration of God's attributes or his works. In other words, it isn't just privately, quietly give thanks. It's a public declaration of giving thanks. Something that Israel was called to do. It isn't enough that they thank God in their heart. They were called on to give thanks publicly. To declare it corporately, much like what we just did now. And so what he's doing is he's calling on them to make a public declaration of God's goodness. And that's the focus. The loving kindness part is an example of God's goodness. Because this psalm is really about praising God and thanking God for his goodness. But then he uses God's covenant loyalty or his faithfulness as a way to say this proves God is a good God because he is faithful. And so really the emphasis here is on praising and thanking God for his goodness. Most English translations translate the word as thanks. But I want you to listen to how one of the lexicons defines it. The root meaning is to acknowledge or declare something. But it's often paired with words like praise, exalt, glorify, and declare. When you find this word used elsewhere in the scriptures, you find it used alongside words like praise, exalt, glorify, declare. So again, it's a form of praise is expressed through Thanksgiving. Second thing I want us to see here that stands out is the opening and the different ways it refers to God. I've already highlighted this a little bit, but you notice that it refers to Him as Yahweh in the very first verse. Give thanks to the Lord. That's the word Yahweh. That's the most personal, intimate name of God. That's the name that God gave to Moses. It's a word, it's a name that would be used only by those who genuinely know Him and have a relationship with Him. In fact, we find that in parts of the Old Testament where when others, the Canaanites, refer to God, they refer to Him as Elohim or God, the generic form, but it's God's people that refer to Him as Yahweh. So he uses that in the very beginning, which is appropriate, but then he uses this other phrase, God of gods and Lord of lords. We might think that it's just simply a poetic thing that he's actually doing there, but those are not common phrases. In fact, God of gods is only used three other times in the whole entire Bible. Lord of lords is only used one other time in the Old Testament to refer to God. And it's only used three times of Jesus in the New Testament. But yeah, that's a pretty common thing for us, isn't it? Lord of lords, Jesus. But it's actually fairly uncommon. What's interesting about these particular phrases here is that both of them are used in another passage, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. And this becomes important to us. 
Listen to this, Deuteronomy 10.17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. If you look at the context of that, chapter 10 of Deuteronomy actually shares some similarities with this psalm. It refers to creation, which this psalm does. It refers to Egypt, which this psalm does. It refers to the promised land, which this psalm does. It refers to God's compassion on his people and God even providing them with food, all of which are contained within this psalm. When you think about that, as the author wrote this psalm, what do you suppose he was thinking about? He was likely thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 10. And what that tells us is that his praise or his thanksgiving was based on Scripture. It was looking at the scriptures that led him now to write his psalm. I think that provides a lesson for us. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10 with me. I'm just going to read verses 21 and 22. Remember, this psalm kind of shadows Deuteronomy chapter 10 with all of the things we just talked about, creation and Egypt and the promise. And at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses wrote this, For he is your praise and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Notice what he starts off with there. He is your praise because he's done these great things. So again, the psalmist, as he's writing Psalm 136, likely has that in mind. He's reminded of all the great things that the Lord has done, and it causes him now to reflect on that and to write. And again, I think the lesson for us is that the basis for his praise is what he's learned from the scriptures. Which tells us that ultimately our praise and our thanksgiving for the Lord ought to be what we see in the scriptures as well. If you ever struggle with having something to praise God for or thank Him for, just think about anything you can find in the Scriptures. What we learn about God in the Scriptures, what He's done for us. We kind of have a list that's almost unending. But yet I think sometimes we almost struggle. You know, whether it's in our own praise or our own thanksgiving, we thank Him more for immediate things, which is not bad. But there's many things just about Him, who He is, the things that He's done, the things that He's promised that can cause us to radiate praise and thanksgiving. And so that's what we see reflected in here. The third thing I think we need to note in the opening here, these first three verses, is the reason the psalmist gives for thanksgiving. It's ultimately God's goodness. It's a pretty generic word for good, but um, I think he has something more specific in mind, and it's that antiphonal refrain. For his loving kindness is everlasting. In other words, one of the things that makes God good is the fact that he is loving kindness. We've talked about that before. I don't need to beat you up with this, but that word I've told you over and over it might be best understood as God's covenant loyalty. It's really a word about his faithfulness. It's a hard word to define in the Hebrew, and it's because it involves things like goodness and loyalty and faithfulness. But the way that it's used typically is to refer to the fact that God is loyal to the covenant. When he makes a promise to somebody, he holds to that promise. Even when they don't 
And we see that with Israel. We, we went through the book of Judges together. And how many times does God have to chastise them to bring them back into his favor and alignment with it? But he never gave up on them. Why? Because he was hesed. He was loyal to them because he promised them. You know, when Abraham decided to go off the rails and try to make a baby himself, God didn't abandon him, did he? No, he still fulfilled his promise to him. And so we see that, and so what the, what the psalmist is doing here is he's, he's saying we, we need to praise God and thank him for his goodness, and probably the best evidence that God is indeed good is that he is faithful. He is loyal to his promise. We even see that in the New Testament. You know, one of the, one of the most awesome passages of Scripture as it comes to our security in Christ is at the end of Romans chapter 8, where Paul could not have made it more clear that nothing can take us out of the hand of the Lord. Nothing! And it's because God is faithful. He has promised us eternal life. And because He's promised us eternal life, He will be faithful. The way that He deals with us, sometimes not being faithful, the Bible tells us, is to chastise us. To teach us, because He loves us, and because He wants us to be in the right relationship with him. And so, that's what he starts off with here. He calls on us to give thanks to the Lord because he's good, and his goodness is demonstrated through his loyalty. So, what does he do now? He's actually going to move on to three historical themes here um, that reflect on the Lord's goodness. This loyalty. In fact, eight times he's going to use this phrase, in him now. The first one he wants to share with us is that God's goodness is revealed by his creative works. We're going to read through verses 4 through 9 again. Again, I will read the first part of the stanza. You will repeat the second part of the stanza. I'm hoping you'll get better at this as we go along. Seems we had a little bit of a slow start there. We don't need to do any voice exercises, do we here? I think I had seen, what was it? What was it? What's it? Uh, the music, high school musical on Disney? That popped on the TV the other night, and it was right in the middle of the scene where they're doing their voice exercises, you know? So we don't have to do that this morning, do we? Get you all warmed up? All right, let's go ahead and read verses 4 through 9. To him alone, or I'm sorry, to him who alone does great wonders. To him who made the heavens with skill. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights, for his is the sun to rule the day, for his is the moon and stars to rule by night. Alright, that was better. You didn't quite sound like the nuns that I see on television repeating their Hail Mary. I think I shared about that a couple weeks ago. It almost sounds like they're dead in repeating it. You guys are much better this time, so you're getting better. So he focuses here on the goodness of God being revealed in his creative works. You'll notice all kinds of things there. He focuses on the fact that God does great or powerful wonders there. He talks about him creating the heavens with skill and then specifically refers to spreading out the waters of, or I'm sorry, the earth above the waters. He refers to the great lights, he says here, which obviously he says refer to the sun to rule the day and the moon and stars to rule by night. So what do you suppose it is here 
He's focusing on, obviously, creation. Genesis chapter 1. Again, his focus comes from the scriptures, what he sees there. What do you suppose it is that links God's covenant loyalty or his faithfulness to creation? Why are those two linked? It's kind of an odd thing, don't you think? You might generally think of, well, really creation refers to God's awesome power, so maybe he would be praising that here, right? But instead, he's saying that God is good, as evidenced by his faithfulness, but somehow uses the creation account then to make his point. One of the things that, um, you guys, I think you've seen this before, I I love the whole creationism debate while many will focus on science and how science can be used to demonstrate a young earth, which good science can, and I think we should use that. But my uh, favorite way to approach the creation debate and the the reliability of the Genesis account is purely from an exegetical or hermeneutical standpoint. In other words, we don't need to go outside the Bible to show that the Bible is valid, that creation, the creation account in Genesis is, is valid. There's so much in the text and everything else, but and one of the arguments that I use to discuss that is the fact that everything we see, if you go through Genesis 1, everything you see that God create has a man, has a focus on benefiting man. Meaning that God specifically designed and engineered his creation to sustain his Main creation, which is us. In fact, if you think about it, the sun, the moon, and the stars are given for very specific purposes. We're told the telling of time and seasons, okay? which is very man-focused. It's how we function, okay? the planting of crops and, and other things. Um, when you look at the uh, food that was created, um, that you've got some food created specifically for animals. You've got some created that require cultivation. And the words that are used there are very, very specific that some of these plants that God created very early on specifically required cultivation. And Adam was created to go on, they were to feed mankind. So some of the, some of the food was created, the, the grass of the field and other things for animals, but some of it was specifically created to feed, and this was all before he created us. Even, even the, the description given of the animals, there are words that are specifically indicating that some of the animals were domesticated animals, meaning they require care by human beings. And those animals would be things like certain forms of cattle that you don't necessarily find in the wild. You only find them being cared for by human beings. And they serve a purpose for us. We not only eat them, but we also use them for farming purposes and other things. And so one of my favorite arguments is to go to the text and to basically show how God created this earth specifically with us in mind. In fact, Isaiah tells us that the earth was specifically created to be inhabited for us, or to be inhabited by us. God never intended his creation to be uninhabited by human beings, which is another reason why it didn't exist for billions of years prior to creating mankind. It could not have existed because God designed it to be inhabited. Now, why is that important? Think about the climate debate right now, folks. And all the worry that within 10 years it's going to be gone, right? We're all going to die and it's just... God has promised us a place to be, a place to live until he's done with his plan. That's faithfulness. We don't have to worry. Now, does that mean that we should just go ahead and pollute like crazy? Absolutely not. We are stewards. We are told that we are here to care for God's creation. Which means we need to be good stewards. But do we have to worry 
that in 10 years, as we're being told by Greta and others, that, oh, it's, gonna, it's all going to be over. We're just, you know, better be looking at Mars so we can go destroy Mars too, right? No, God has promised us. He is faithful. He is loyal. And we can see that in his creation. This place will be here. We don't have to worry. God will care for us still. He will continue to provide for us. And you see that in his creation. Because he built it for us to serve his purpose. He will maintain it for us. He will be loyal. He will be faithful. And so one of the things that we see in his creation, one of the reasons that creation itself, as he points this out, is it becomes abundantly clear in Genesis 1, which I think he's focusing on here, that God built us this amazing place. Even, you think about it, even his creation, we're told in in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, is designed in such a way that it reveals God to us. And it will continue to reveal God to us. God wants us to know him. He wants his creation to see him. So he continues to reveal himself faithfully to his creation. We're told by Peter that one of the reasons why why Christ has not returned yet is that God is being patient, he's being long-suffering, he's waiting. Why? So that not everybody will perish, but have an opportunity to come to Christ. And much of that will be done through what is revealed in his creation. He's giving people time. Why? Because he's faithful. He's faithful. And so he says here that we can praise him for his goodness because of his faithfulness as seen through his creation. And we could go on and on about that. There's all kinds of stuff in God's creation that demonstrates he's faithful. It's not going to collapse under its own weight. We're not going to destroy the planet. We may make it a dirty place to live sometimes. But because God is faithful... He's not going to allow that to happen. He's not going to allow us to completely destroy our planet that we cannot survive. He's faithful. In fact, I, I wish I remembered the passage this morning. We have one specific passage of Scripture that does indicate that the earth will continue to exist until God is completely ready to redo it. Let's read the next phrase, the next section here. God's goodness is revealed in his deliverance of Israel from Egypt. I want you to read with me verses 10 through 15. It says, To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn. Where's your part? All right, let's start this over again. Okay? Am I, am I losing you here? Am I putting you to sleep? Okay, shake it off. Shake it off a little bit. I'm going to have to have you guys stand. Yeah. Verse 10. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, and brought Israel out of their midst, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder, and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But he overthrew Pharaoh, and his army in the Red Sea. Okay, so the next thing he focuses on here is a major event, which is delivering Israel from Egypt. He highlights a number of things. He struck down the Egyptians, he says. He delivered Israel from their oppressors. He parted the Red Sea and protected Israel as they crossed over to the other side. He even destroyed the Pharaoh's army. I think it's a little bit easier maybe in this place here to see God's faithfulness. 
He raises up Moses. He sends Moses to, to Israel and makes certain promises. I'll deliver you from Egypt. Even when the Pharaoh made that extremely difficult, God continued to be faithful and provided through it. It took them out into the wilderness where all they had was, in some respects, the clothes on their back and the stuff that the Egyptians gave them. They lead out into the wilderness. Every obstacle they faced, God promised to take care of it and did just that, did he not? Even when it came time for screaming for food out in the middle of the wilderness and they said, we want to return. What are we doing out here? And God provides the food for them. And so we saw his goodness and his faithfulness to his people. And it goes all the way back, if you think about it, to the promise made to Abraham that I'll make you a great nation. Even showed him the land. And so this is the beginning part of that and that will come next. But we see God's goodness and his faithfulness revealed in this promise that God had made and the fact that he protected and delivered Israel through all of Egypt. I don't think we have to stretch too much to think about that from a gospel perspective, do we? We not only, as we think about our desperate need that we had to be rescued and delivered from sin, but God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that he would deal with the sin problem. We call it the Proto-Evangelon, which is where he promised Eve a seed. And we see that God fulfilled that. We see all the way through the Old Testament how he was constantly working towards that. We're coming up on our Christmas time now where we see that God provided the ultimate deliverance for us in Christ. We refer to him as the great deliverer for a reason. And so it's not hard for us to stop and to think there's reason to thank him for his goodness because he didn't have to do that. In fact, it's interesting... um, Paul writes in Romans that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Another way to translate that is the kindness of God. And he did that through Christ. And so the second thing the psalmist focuses on here is that God's goodness is seen in his faithfulness to deliver his people. And we see that in Israel and we even see that here. I'm going to look at the third section here, verses 16 through 22. We're going to read that again interactively. Go ahead and read with me. I'll start in verse 16. To him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who smote great kings, and slew mighty kings, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, for his loving kindness and he gave their land as a heritage, even a heritage to Israel, his servant. So the third thing he focuses on here is God leading Israel to the promised land. This, I think, is an example of the Lord's goodness in fulfilling a promise. The last section really revolved around him showing his goodness through deliverance. And this is more the fulfillment of a promise. It goes beyond deliverance. It's one thing to deliver from danger. It's another thing to go beyond that and provide promises in addition. And so what he looks at here is the Lord had promised Israel that they would inhabit the land. And so what he reveals here is that 
even after wilder, uh, even ever after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God ultimately delivered them to the promised land. We went through the book of Joshua and we saw that. We saw the difficulties that they faced and the way that God continued to work with them. He constantly struck down these great and mighty kings. We basically have a bunch of um, slaves coming out of Egypt, probably farmers at best, going up against world-class armies who were actually equipped for war, but Israel comes out with what? Shovels and spades and stuff. And yet somehow, God delivers them from these mighty kings. All because he promised them he would do it. And so what we find here is that the psalmist is saying we should praise or thank the Lord for his goodness, his loyalty in fulfilling his promise. And again, it goes all the way back to Abraham. Do you think there's a message in there related to the gospel as well? Probably the greatest promise that God has fulfilled is what we're about to celebrate in a couple of weeks. Again, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In fact, it's really the first promise given, is it not? It's the first promise given. It's the most important promise. Everything in the Old Testament is leading up to the fulfillment of that promise. Everything. We're told that the Old Testament is a tutor to do what? Teach us about history? No. To lead us to what? Christ. The most important promise. I think it's fitting that the psalmist here, whether he did it knowingly or not, concludes his three pieces of evidence on that thought of the Lord is good because he is faithful with his promises. Think about it. Many have not had the privilege that we have, meaning many of the people that would have been reading this at the time hadn't seen Christ yet. The promise was still future. We get to look back on it. We get to see that God fulfilled that promise. And so what we find here is the psalmist looks at these three things, God's creative work in creation, how he was faithful there, how he delivered Israel from the danger and the oppression that they were under, much like he delivers us from our own sin. He was faithful there. Then lastly, this great promise to take them to the promised land parallels the fact that he's promised Christ and the ultimate hope of eternal life for us. Do you think he'll make good on that promise? Absolutely. So he ends the psalm then, in verses 23 through 26, with a concluding charge to give thanks. I'm going to read that. We'll interact once more. And then I'll let you off the hook. I'll start with verse 23. Who remembered us in our lowest state, and has rescued us from our adversaries, who gives food, food to all flesh, Give thanks to the God of heaven. I want you to think about what he just said here in terms of the gospel. He says he remembered us in our lowest state. Think about the gospel. Christ did just that. He said he came to save sinners. Lowest state. says that when we did not deserve it, he saved us. Says he rescued us from our adversaries. Israel would have understood that because of their constant enemies, but we too have an enemy. 
Do we not? The enemy is primarily death, which we know Christ has rescued us from that. It says he gives food to all flesh. I think that's a reference to his constant provision, both in this life and ultimately in the next. And so the psalmist wraps up this psalm with sort of a summary and then another charge to continue to give thanks. The word remember was something that the Israelites would do at their lowest point. They were to remember what God had done. And it's interesting how um, praise is often born on the idea of remembrance. There's a reason why we're told to remember things like this. That's where the praise is generated from. It's reflecting. Even even in times of struggle, I think, you know, James, um, when he tells us to consider it all joy, he uses a word there that ultimately refers to knowing what the Lord has done in the past. There's this idea of remembrance. And so we're constantly called to remember here, and the Lord remembered us here, but it's also a reflection on the fact that we're supposed to remember as well. So what do we, what do, we do as a takeaway with all of this? I think there's three primary things that come to mind, and we've, we've already highlighted them, but we're constantly reminded by God's creative work. Whether it's creation or anything else, we are constantly reminded of God's work in our lives, that He is faithful. We're constantly remembered or reminded of God's deliverance. Not only here and now, I mean, think about the trials and the things that we face today and the way that God walks us through those things and delivers us from those things. And the last that we have this promise. God promised to save us. We know that he did save us. We see the evidence in our own lives. But beyond that, there is also now the promise that he's going to return and the promise of eternal life in his presence. All three of these things are highlighted in this psalm by this unknown author, and they're all highlighted for the purpose of reflecting God's goodness and his faithfulness to us that we might, as his people, corporately praise him and thank him for what he's done. I think it's a great way to end our series. Um, And again, especially as you think about the time that we're coming upon here in the next few weeks. Because all three of these things ultimately are wrapped up in that. Again, we go all the way back the first instance of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. We see God constantly delivering his people through their difficulties and trials, ultimately delivering them and us from the most significant, which is death. And then lastly, the promise is that he's constantly fulfilled all the way through the birth, death, burial, burial, resurrection of Christ, and ultimately his second coming and the hope of eternal life that we all have. All three of these things that he's highlighted, we find wrapped up in a nice little package with a pretty bow on it called the gospel. It's a pretty amazing thing. So we of all people have reason to praise him and to thank him, especially as we come close to this wonderful time that we call Christmas.